Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today on the show, Tony Peterson and I are breaking down five hard-earned whitetail lessons that the two of us were recently reminded of and that we believe can help you become more successful this season. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And I'm back I'm back from whatever thing Tony's been saying I've been doing. I don't know if it's been uh, <laughs> filming a fantasy movie with Spencer or collecting seashells or God knows what, <laughs> but I'm back from it. And uh, the 2022 hunting season has kicked off for me and my partner in crime, Tony. So uh, today we are back together and we're here to discuss what we learned from our first hunts of the year. We've had some highs. We've had some lows, and we've had a whole bunch of what I'd call learning opportunities in between. And I think, Tony, I think you'd agree, there's been some hard-earned lessons here early on, like right out the gate, that we can, you know, as individuals, but that I think also, for everybody else listening, I think we can all learn from some of these things and take it through the rest of the deer season. So we're going to talk through... Our first couple hunts of the year, you know, that would be my early season hunt in Idaho with Furter and your hunt, Tony, in Wisconsin, or your hunts, I should say, with your daughters. Um, And then what I want to do is as we use these stories, as we talk through these stories, we're going to highlight and break down maybe four, five, six major lessons that we can take from these, that we can take from these hunts and then, you know, use throughout the rest of the year. So that's... That's my game plan, Tony. Uh, good plan, bad plan. Are you indifferent? Are you already bored? 
What do you think? <laughs> no, I, I think it's a good plan, man. I, uh, I'm just continually amazed at how often I bump into something out there that just teaches me a valuable lesson. And I think you and I have both gone through some stuff already this season that's, that's worth sharing in this episode. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's both depressing and encouraging that we can, you know, I've been hunting since I was three or four. You've been hunting for gosh knows how long and we're still learning stuff or being reminded of stuff or bumping up against something and saying, dang it, what do we do now? <laughs> you just never stop learning. So that's, that's a good thing. I think. Oh, I do. I do too. I mean, I think, you, you know, there's one, one reminder you get when you're, when you create content in this space, it, you know, doing the job that you and I do it's like you hit March and you're like, I don't know what to talk about. I don't know what to write about. And then you hit September and you're like, I have a million different ideas I want to cover because you're out there living it. And there's so many of those things that happen to you where like, man, you're just, there's such a valuable lesson in that encounter or that experience or that blood trail or whatever. It's just, this is, this is a wild time of year. I'm excited for this, Mark. Yeah, I agree. Hey, real quick. Uh, I just remembered before we get into these hunts, I do have to make a couple plugs. Uh, First off, season 11 of Meat Eater, the newest season, the brand new season of Meat Eater is going to be, oh gosh, I'm going to get real trouble here if I get the date wrong, so I better get this date right. Um, The new season is going to be launching on October 26th, yes. October 26th, the new season will be launching. But here's the kicker. This is different than before. The new season is only going to be available on the Meat Eater website. It's going to be free. You don't need a new account for anything. Like You don't have to pay for anything. Uh, you just need to be signed into the Meat Eater website, and then you can watch that new season for free October 26th. And in the weeks leading up to that, we're going to be putting season 7, season 8, season 9, and season 10 all on the website to watch too. So uh, that's plug number one. If you want to see some cool new meat eater stuff, that's coming your way to themeateater.com. Did I miss anything on that one, Tony? You're you're on the, the same emails as me. Did I get that right? I, th- I think you nailed it, buddy. Okay. Plug number two, and this one I know pretty well because I've been so involved in it. Uh, my show, Deer Country, my brand new whitetail show, Deer Country. Uh, we now have three, no, by the time you're listening to this, there will have been four episodes up on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. So you've heard me mention the Washington, D.C. hunt. You've heard me mention the Arkansas backcountry hunt. You last week hopefully saw me chase whitetails with a handheld decoy in the Great Plains. And this week's episode, I went up to Maine to learn how to track deer in the snow um, and learning under the tutelage of Hal Blood, just like a, a legend in that world. Uh, really, really interesting hunt. Like there's a lot of great learning opportunities in that one. So highly recommend you check that stuff out. Uh, Tony, pretend I'm not here. You don't need to, you don't need to butter me up. You don't need to fluff me. Can you give us your review so far of deer country or what should people expect or be looking for if they haven't watched it yet? I think they should check it out because it is not like any other deer hunting show out there. I, and, and I truly mean that. The, the concept is great, and it's just a different thing than the the industry has been delivering for a long, long time. So they sh- they should check it out on that recommendation alone. There you go. I think I think that's accurate. 
And uh, I think it's worth watching. Like you said, it's different. It's not a bunch of big trophy bucks delivered on a platter. It's all about new places, new styles of hunting, and learning. And uh, that's what we try to do here on the podcast, too. So I'm proud of it. Well, and, it, and it, the, the good thing about it, too, is you're right. It does highlight the reality of so many different hunting situations based around whitetails. And we, we tend to get so myopic and almost like xenophobic over our own whitetail hunting. And we forget there's this huge world out there of people hunting all these different styles and all these different places. And it's kind of nice to be reminded of that. Cause if you consume a lot of hunting media, you, you tend to see hunts that occur in the same places in the same style, because you know, usually they're filmed or whatever. And it's like, you kind of got to go to some of these places to get an easy hunt on film. And that's what happens over and over again. And this is, I would not say that this is that I would say this is a different thing. Yeah. We don't need any more, uh, hunts over a food plot in Iowa. Do we? <laughs> no, no. Nope. Uh, yeah. Okay. So speaking of that, then let's, let's continue talking about some different kind of stuff. Cause the hunts that you and I are talking about today are not the kind of thing that gets shown on TV either. Uh, um, so you want to kick it off? You, uh, you had a lot of interesting stuff happen in your first couple hunts. Can you, can you fill me in on what happened and what you learned from it? Should we we start with a good story? Yeah. Yeah. Good story first. (laughs) Because, because I know we're going to, we're going to break bad here eventually on this one. Uh, yeah, you know, we go over to Wisconsin a lot and my, my little girls started hunting last year. Uh, because there's no minimum age limit over there. And, you know, they were nine last year and my one daughter killed a doe and my other daughter killed a doe and a little buck. And so, you know, my plan this year was to get them over there every weekend I could, that I was going to be home. And my one daughter who hadn't killed a buck, she was up first. And so we had gone over in the summer and put up some blinds and some cameras and caught some trout and kind of made a, made a couple weekends out of it. And when we went over there, uh, the Friday before the opener, it was hot. Like, I don't, I don't know if you dealt with this level of heat out in Idaho on your hunts, but it was, it was like humid hot, which is the worst, you know, when you're, when you go out in the morning and you're like, oh, it's, you know, it's opening day of deer season, but it's like 65 degrees with like a hundred percent humidity. It just feels, feels weird, you know, like it's not, not what you typically expect, but I knew, you know, from running cameras, I, I knew we had a decent chance of, of running into a doe or a buck and she was, she was hunting anything that didn't have fawns or anything that didn't have spots. And we sat, you know, opening day, we sat, you know, basically four hours in the morning, four hours in the evening, never saw a deer, which is really typical up there where we're hunting. And then the following morning we got in super early. Cause I think I, I keep thinking it's more, more important to, let let our spots settle down especially when i take these girls out because we have to go into a blind you know it's not like we're super mobile so the spot the blind is in i need to preserve that movement around there as much as possible and so they get they get kind of pissed about it but i've been making them get up earlier and earlier and earlier and we get in there way before first light and you know the second morning of the season we did that and just randomly looked up and here's this spike buck walking in from like 25 yards out and my daughter that that was with me is like really good at rushing her shots. <laughs> like you never know what's going to happen. And so our, <laughs> our deal is, you know, like I want you to aim at them and then you tell me when you're ready, then I'm going to take the safety off because they're using a crossbow 
and then you you choose your shot. So I'm kind of eyeballing the situation until they square up up in their you know broadside or quartering away, and you know it's kind of like a little team effort that way. Because if I didn't do that, especially with this daughter, she'd probably shoot the, the moment he stuck his nose out, like <laughs> I, to to just get it over. And so this buck walks into like 12 yards and poses up, and I take that safety off, and I'm I'm like. I'm thinking, you know, she's going to take a little time or whatever. And I, I pop that safety off and that crossbow goes off like 0.1 seconds later. <laughs> and, and all I hear is that bolt slam into a tree. And I just go, honey, you, you have to take your time and aim. And she's like, dad, the crosshairs were right on his chest. It was perfect. And I'm like, I, I don't think so. I thought she missed completely. Oh man. So we have this little argument in the blind. Cause she's like, I think we could go get him right now. And when he ran off you know i lost sight of him right away but it sounded like he fell over so i was like maybe i maybe i am wrong maybe she zipped it right through him and so we gave him a half hour and got up and as soon as we got out there i could see blood all over the brush and so i let her start blood trailing and he only made it maybe maybe 50 yards and she she had hit him perfect but it was like in my in my head with her and if you met her, you'd be like, oh, okay, I get I get his concern a little bit because she's real squirrely. Uh, <laughs> but she's just perfect, just laced him. So that was that was a lot better than the second week when I brought my second daughter over, which we can talk later. But it really was, you know, it was a good lesson on two fronts, right? Like I always preach about, you know, hot weather, cold weather, windy, rainy, whatever, go especially in the early season, because those deer are used to that. And it was not nice deer hunting weather. And the other thing was, you know, you we're putting in enough time in these spots and, and trying to preserve the movement so much that I feel like it's just paying off in, you know, not like tons of deer sightings because we'd never have them there, but good encounters. And it just, it just worked out for us. So, so tell me a little bit more about, uh, you know, this is something you teased up before we start recording. You were talking about how the amount of time you let something settle matters on a hunt like this. Even yep. and you, you kind of, I thought it was interesting mentioning the fact that this warm weather, cold weather, whatever, you know, get out there. But I think one thing that I have been guilty of sometimes is that when the weather's not that good, if it's like really warm or lousy, like a day you're talking about, I'll go in late. I'll be like, ah, they're not going to move to the last half hour or something like that. So like those are the days you're tempted to get in late or, you know, whatever it might be. If it's raining and nasty, you might be like, well, I'm not going to get in there an hour before dark, you know, or before daylight in the morning. I'll, I'll get out there right at daylight and just go out because I don't want to get soaking wet. Um, but I know you're someone who sometimes advised, you know, putting in that time regardless. Yeah. I mean, I think... I think it's so important, man. And I learned this, you know, at least I should say this is sort of drilled home in my head when I go on these hunts where, you know, you're hunting public land somewhere and you don't have anything else to do. And so I'm like, well, I'm I'm better off being in a tree if the the wind is going to work for me than being back at camp. And, you know, you start killing deer at off times. And, you know, when I, when I elk hunted earlier in September, I was primarily sitting water and I kept thinking about that. Like, you know, I don't know when a bull's going to get thirsty and come in, but I know if I'm back at camp taking a nap, it's going to suck if that's when he comes in. And so it's like, I'd rather just be out there as much as possible. And, you know, for me, it's, it's different. I can go sit all day and I can, you know, not go too crazy when I've got 10 year olds with 
me. There's a different consideration, but I'm trying to get them to learn that lesson too, that like, you know, yeah, you, you might be tired at nine o'clock in the morning, but why not just sit till 10 just in case? Let's figure out a way to make it happen. And the more that we do that, or, you know, I know they don't like getting up early, but man, I'd rather get in there pretty early. Not as early as you did on the back 40 when we filmed together. That was ridiculous. But like <laughs> somewhat, some happy medium there in between where you're not pushing it. Like you're like, I feel really good about us getting in super quiet. And that's, that's the other thing. You know, if you're talking about getting in the morning or getting out a little bit later in the afternoon, if you're, if you're like, man, you know, I'm kind of pushing it here, you're going to go faster and you're going to make more noise and you're going to notice fewer things, right? Like you're not going to notice the signs the same way. You might run into one walking in or you're just, you're just not in the zone quite as well. Yeah, and just moving. make mistakes. What, what's that? Just make mistakes too. Like if you're yeah. rushing, you're more prone to all sorts of mistakes. Yeah. I mean, you forget stuff, you step on sticks. It's just like, it's not a good state to be in when you want to go out there and really not have your presence be known by everything. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So if we're, if we're tying a bow on something here that, you know, we should think about for the rest of the year, it's always give yourself some extra time and, and don't assume the worst. Always assume, you know what, this might work out. I'm going to give myself proper time. Don't give into that temptation to say, well, it's not going to be that great. I'll go, I'll sleep in for a half hour more or eh, it's not that great. I'll lay on the couch for half an hour more. That half hour is always more valuable in the field, whether, even if it's just because it gives you a better state of mind. I think that's, that's so true and something that's hard to stick with, especially as you go throughout the year and you get more and more exhausted. It's easy yep. to start, you know, giving into that. Yeah. And I mean, you just feel better about yourself. Even, even if you go out and blank, if you're like, I'm hunting till 10 o'clock in the morning. Cause I feel like there's my chance. It's kind of like, you know, if you, if you're like, I'm going for a six mile run after we do this, I don't yet. Like I could feel okay about myself if I quit after three, I'm like, well, I still ran three miles, but that's not what I'm there for. You know, like you feel better if you just get it done and go do, go do the work you need. And that's, that's part of being successful as a deer hunter is like, I, I'm going to, this, this is my plan and I'm going to see it through until something tells me I really should, you know, abandon it and do something else. Yeah. Yeah. True. Well, what happened next? What was the, what was the next weekend? Oh, you want to get into that one? I think so. So, uh, like a good dad, I pulled my daughter out of school early so we could drive over and sit. And then I took her out of school the next day, uh, so we could make a long weekend out of it because you you know how it is. Once you get into October, you're you got a lot of stuff going on for work in the in the field and not necessarily enough time to take the kids out. And so I said, let's make a long weekend of it and go see what we can do. And we got over there, man, and it was like, you know, the first night we had a doe and a fawn come in close, like eight maybe eight feet from the blind and they winded us right before they came out. But it was a really cool encounter because it was a beautiful night. And, you know, by then the weather had gotten really good. Like it was, you know, sixties and kind of overcast and, you know, in the morning it was maybe like 40, 38. And so it was, it was gonna happen. And then, you know, the next day it rain start the rain started to move in. We still, we stopped, we saw some deer got really close to shooting a doe and just didn't, didn't, quite step out where we needed it to but up there you know if you have deer encounters every day i feel really good about it 
so then we went into the third morning and it was pouring rain. We got up and there was just, it was coming down. But I told my daughter, I'm like, well, we're, we're going to get wet going through the woods, but we get into the blind, we'll be pretty dry. And it was supposed to end at like eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning. And I was like, we need to get out there and just be there for a while. And we get out there and, you know, it's one of those mornings that takes forever to get light out because it's overcast and rainy and you're in the woods and finally got light out and nothing. And she was pretty tired and, you know, just randomly, maybe 45 minutes into shooting light, I looked up and there's a little five pointer coming in and he, he either winded us a little bit or he saw us because, and I, I think he saw us because the, the light was so low and so even that it was just not great scenario to be in a blind. Like they're going to be able to see in there pretty well, but you know, he's a little buck and he wasn't that smart. So he started to get a little wiggy and she got on the crossbow and he kind of started to trot a little bit. And I just murped at him and he stopped 20 yards, quartered away. And I took her safety off and a couple seconds later she shot and I heard that, that bolt zip through him and he bounced off there. And I was like, man, I can't believe that just happened. And I asked her and she said, it felt really good. You know, like I think I hit him really well. And so I thought, man, we're going to have another 40, 50 yard blood trail and be back in town eating pancakes. And we gave him, you know, some time and got out there. Cause I, I really needed, I, I was really fighting the urge to go right away because of the rain, but the light just was like, not great. Like it was, it was light enough to see anything, but looking for like specks of blood on the wet ground while it was raining. I was like, let's just, let's give it time. We don't, we don't need to rush it. So we got out there and started looking and there's blood everywhere. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. But then we hit that point of the blood trail where it was like a hundred yards. And I just told her, I was like, honey, I don't think, I don't think this is going to break the way we think it's going to now, because this is not making me feel great. And then, you know, you're like, okay, do we push it or do we go back? But the rain was heavy enough and we had a good enough blood trail where I was like, I was really conflicted. I'm like, I don't know. I don't really know what to do here. Like, I don't want to push it, but I know this blood's going to wash away. And then I'm mad at myself for even hunting in it, you know, because then you're like, if we lose this deer because of these decisions, I'm like, this that really sucks. And so real quick, stepping back one half second, the, the dilemma is you can follow right now because you have the good blood, but there's the risk that if the hit wasn't as good as you thought, that deer might still be alive and you might be pushing that deer and then you'll never find it. But on the flip side, if you wait, that deer might bed up and, and die and you'll find him up there. But the risk is that if you wait, the blood trail might disappear with the rain and then you've nothing to go off of and, and yep. you'll have a really hard time finding. So that's, that's the two, you know, possible paths and possible sets of outcomes in these kind of rainy situations. And it's, it's a hard decision. Well, it is. And what kind of ultimately, you know, put its finger on the scale there for me was the fact that this is like Northwood's thick, nasty, this is not like a nice deciduous forest where grid searching is going to be like a real good possibility. And I knew if we lost that blood trail, it was really going to be like a needle in a haystack type of thing. Cause this is e even the higher woods there, they're just thick and nasty. They're like good grouse cover type of stuff. And I knew the direction he was heading. There's an enormous swamp there. You know, it's part cattails, part alder thickets, part willows, just, just like rough stuff. 
to, to a grid search. And so I said, we're going to go slow, but we're going to stay on this blood and see how it shakes out. And, you know, you get 200 yards into it and you go, now I know this is not what I thought it was. Like, there's no way she shot him through the ribs the way we were hoping. And, but you've got good blood. And so you keep pushing it and sneaking along. And it was, it was really rough because, you know, a couple hundred yards into it and you're soaked. And it's like, there's, you know, every, every advancement you make on the trail, you're like, well, this, this feels good because we're still on blood, mm-hmm. but we're going farther. And the odds of us running across this deer dead, you know, and so what I started thinking, and I'm sure people listening to this are going, yeah, it was a muscle hit. And that's what I started thinking. She hit it too low or she hit it too far forward and, you know, hit a whole bunch of muscle right away. And you get a lot of that promising bright red blood and then you start to lose it a little bit. And I would say probably, I don't know, maybe between like 400 and 500 yards into it, I started finding just like clotted up blood on stuff that he would brush up against. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, this is, this does not make me feel good. And it hadn't stopped raining when it was supposed to. And so we got into that swamp and I lost it completely. Like I'm like, I got no more blood and I was just standing there and this happens a lot. I'm just standing there and I'm looking at her and she's soaked and she's cold and it's been hours and that buck got up and ran away through that swamp like he wasn't even hurt. And what he went through, I was I I stay I had her stay there and I went to get on it again. And I was like up to my nuts in swamp water. I'm like, I can't even go anymore. And it was just like he went through there like he had no problem. And so we ended up trying to get around there and and pick him up again and lost it again. And it was just like one of those deals where you're like we're, we're blood trailing or, you know, now we're just like looking for sign on a deer that I don't think is dead. And it just was one of those deals where it was like, just not fun. It went, it went from real fun to real frustrating and disappointing. Mm -hmm. And it was a long day. How did, how did she take it? Like, what did you say to your daughter to, to get through something like that? You know, she was really beaten up on herself on the blood trail, especially, you know, being out there and being soaked and just knowing because she she went from, you know, like she went on the roller coaster, man. She was she was convinced she smoked it. And then when we started figuring out that this wasn't the case, I think she started to accept it. And she was really bummed, like really bummed. But, you know, by the time we got back and got dried out. You know, she was asking me about the deer I've hit and lost. I'm like, I don't, we have, how much time do you have? You know, like (laughs) if you do this stuff long enough, that happens. And, you know, I think with her especially, I think it'll leave a real mark. And I think she'll think long and hard about her shots in the future. And I think she'll take better shots. And it, and it's not like this wasn't a good shot to take. I think it just happened fast and I think she rushed it and she's, she's usually really solid with that stuff. Like she's killed deer and turkeys and usually pretty good at it. And I think this one, she'll go, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to hit that deer right where I want to from here on out. And so it was, it, you know, it went okay. So what's the, What's the takeaway from this one? Is it to do with the shot? Is it to do with the tracking? Like, is there any major lesson you were reminded of or that you can learn or that we can all think about from this? You know, I think, I think the lesson is 
you know, you, you can say, okay, well, a hit like this, you need to wait six hours or eight hours or a hit like that. You need to wait this amount of time or this kind of blood or this kind of reaction and all of that stuff's okay. But really what this, you know, the, the post shot recovery boils down to is experience level. And when you go through something like this, it just reminds you that even, you know, even I've been on, I don't know how many blood trails now, you know, hundreds between me and all my buddies and everybody, like you still go through those emotions and that, those times on a blood trail where you're like, I don't know. And I, and I, what I, I felt the worst about on this one was like, I felt like I had to push it because of the rain. And I'm normally really cautious about blood trails. Like I'd rather give them way more time than not enough. And on this one, I was just like, should I even have been hunting in this stuff? You know, like, should I, because I know one of the things that I can't stand is when I feel rushed on a blood trail. And, you know, when you walk out there and it's pouring rain, unless you're a total idiot, you're like, okay, well, if we shoot one and it doesn't go perfectly, we're going to be rushed on this blood trail. So my, my biggest regret there was not really factoring that in and, and deciding whether it was worth it to hunt in those conditions or not. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day 
into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. So where do you stand on that now, Tony, as far as do you hunt when you know there's going to be a steady rain or not? I mean, that's something that for a long time I thought, oh, for sure, because I grew up in the school of of a certain person who preaches always hunting in the rain. It's great hunting. And, and so I started hunting all the time in the rain and saw a lot of good action. So I was like, okay, I'm into it. But then, you know, the more you have bad things happen, like what you discussed, the more I start to think more and more about, gosh, what happens if I do have that blood trail disappear? And so I've, I've gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on it myself. Um, when I'm in a spot where I'm close to home with, with a buddy that has a tracking dog, that makes me a lot more comfortable because they can yep. do very well in the rain actually. Um, but I'm curious what your take is. Cause I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a conclusive answer for every situation. It's, it's kind of up in the air for me still on kind of situation dependent. Yeah. You know, for me, I'm, I'm the same way. I love hunting in the rain. I just, it, you know, the, the deer move in the rain big time, but I'll probably be a little more cautious because this was this wasn't like a nice drizzle where they're going to come out in the beans and it's going to be awesome. This was like pretty heavy and it was probably too heavy to take a 10 year old in, you know, like that, that was my lesson there. If it was me, you know, and I was sitting out there, I, w- I would hunt that situation, but I would be, I'd be like, it's 20 yards or in, or yeah. I'd be really, really selective. And this one. I don't, you know, I'm hoping this buck shows back up on camera. I'm hoping he didn't die, but I suspect what she did was just shot a little too far forward. And so she probably wasn't off by much. It might've been a couple inch difference or something like that, but it doesn't matter. You know, like this, this is the outcome that happened from it. And so it just does make you think like, and it, it might be different for me if I took her to my buddy's place in Southwestern Wisconsin with nice open woods and deciduous forests that might be a different deal than being up in Northern Wisconsin where it's just thick and nasty. You know, I mean, if you might have the same consideration, you know, if you live in Nebraska, you might hunt in a downpour all the time and never worry about losing a deer. But if you hunt in Louisiana, you might, you know? Yeah. yeah that's a good point. Well, uh, that is the, the toughest of lessons right there. No doubt about that. Yeah, it was, it was a pain. And what really sucks is that little five pointer was like the buck we were hunting. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, that's the guy who's living here. And I think that's the one we're going to kill. And now we don't have anything to work with. So I gotta, wait, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta wait for somebody else to move in, but you know, it, it is what it is. It's, it's a learning experience every year. And that one, that one was a lesson that she was going to learn eventually. And I was going to be reminded of, and it just happened to happen this year. Yeah. <sighs> well, I hope things trend back up for you and your daughters here in the coming weeks. Do you want to want to hear about my story and lessons learned? I do. I can't wait. All right. So Idaho year three. Uh, I've done full recaps of the previous two years of hunts here on the podcast. So any longtime listeners should should know what's happened here. But I'm going to give you a really quick cliff notes to lead you up to this point, because when I set out for the first hunt, first day of our season, I said, all right, this is like day 16. And our buddy Sam, who tagged along for some of it, uh, was like, what do you mean day 16? This is day one. I'm like, no, this is like day 16, because we hunted two different times the previous two years. And I feel like now, today, 
is like the accumulation of all these other hunts leading up to it. Like I've been whittling away, whittling away, figuring out, figuring out. And finally, like I know the spots within the spots. I have a plan A and I have a plan B and I know where these things are. And like, I've got it nailed finally. Okay. That's how I thought going into this. And, um, so year one, the very quick cliff notes, like me and my buddy, Josh Furter showed up to this brand new piece of public that I had just like glassed one night in the summer was the extent of experience I had out there in year one. We start hunting it and right away, like we are seeing a lot of deer and like we have some close calls with nice bucks, but then very quickly, like we're seeing people like every night walking past us or walking or we're walking past them or we're seeing trucks at the trailheads. And like every day there was some kind of bump, some kind of running with folks. And like very quickly the deer behavior changed. I saw a couple really nice bucks, but then had like a bunch of kids drive UTVs all around me and like just destroy the whole area. So that was year one. It was promising in a way because we saw a good deer and a bunch of deer but discouraging because like hunting pressure like blew up everything we thought we might be able to make a move on. So that was year one. Year two, we go back in and we say, all right, hunting pressure is a problem. We're going to just get past them. We're going to get deeper and both like farther in from the access points and then also deeper towards the deep, deep bedding cover that's along this river corridor. And we start doing that and right away we uh, start, you know, seeing deer. We kind of edge in a little bit further each day. We have close calls. Josh had several nice close calls with good bucks, missed a buck twice. Uh, I <laughs> had to throw that. I always have to throw that in. <laughs> is, is that why he isn't on this uh, podcast? Mark? Yeah. He, he didn't want to relive that again. <laughs> <laughs> and then I pushed in, discovered this new bedding area on these islands and had, you know, two different shooter bucks within range, but behind brush and saw a bunch more movement that, you know, really gave me a firm idea of, okay, like we're so close, but we just ran out of time. So that was year two. Again, though, we are seeing people like there were folks going in two miles with us. I couldn't believe it. There was, you know, I bumped into folks here and there, trail cameras. Like, so we knew pressure was still a thing, but we were, we were in it. Like we were getting deep enough that we were still in it. So year three, I've said, okay, I know we have to get into where we kind of finally settled on there at the end last year. Um, I know there'll be deer moving back there. I know their patterns. We just have to tweak things. We are so close. So this summer I went back in there and did a little more scouting, scouted out a few more areas, went further than I've gone in the past. Kind of the spots that I had observed last year from afar, I went and walked on foot and saw, okay, okay, this is why the deer were doing this thing. And okay, this is why they were doing that other thing. So for example, at the end of year two, I had been on work in this island and you might remember this, Tony, I was texting you. I was like, I had these bucks come through heading kind of northwest to southeast and they headed that way in the evening. And then in the morning they came up the opposite side of the island, like 70 yards across this little opening and went back the other way. And then the next day they went back that way again. And so I was trying to figure out like, are they going to come on the north side of the island or the south side of the island? And why do they always kind of hook down at the end of this island? I didn't quite know the answer to that. So this summer when I went back in there, I walked it all, and I found that there's this channel that where I'd been crossing, it was pretty narrow and relatively easy to cross. But if you kept going down to the east, that channel went from being like a creek to all of a sudden expanding into like a great big backwater. And, and basically impassable. Like they could if they wanted, but none of these deer were going to go across this like 50 yard, 60 yard wide, big pond 
when they could just cross here at the beginning of that little shallow spot. And what I realized when I got there is I saw that and then all this sign showed me like, oh, wow, all of those deer, they're they're going on opposite sides of the island. But when they get to this point, they're all coming, they're all funneling down to this crossing. So I realized like, all right, I found the spot within the spot here. And then I found like a similar kind of thing, different specifics, but another one of these like spots within the spot on another section of the public in another zone I'd kind of explored a little bit year one and two. I found another one. So I had like three of these spots that were fine-tuned, I thought, this summer. So coming into the hunt, when I talked to Sam, I'm like, man, this is day 16. I got them dialed. I knew like, all right, I've got this plan A that is like keyed up. And then if that doesn't work, okay, I've got this other plan B that I think is just going to be a great opportunity too. And if that doesn't work, I still know this other spot that I've really, you know, worked in figuring it out and they're going to be there. I should add one other point, which is that because of all that hunting pressure we experienced in year one and year two, that first week, we got to thinking that this might be like the opening week effect that you've experienced and I've experienced. And a lot of folks, I think over the last, I don't know, five plus years, something like that, as as kind of this early season opener hunting has gotten more and more popular, it seems like everybody's out there opening day in these early states. Nebraska, Kentucky, North Dakota, Idaho, Wyoming, wherever. If you've got that early September thing, it's it's kind of rare still, right? Not all states are open. So everybody floods to these states to hunt those first few days. So I thought, how about I just avoid that first week of crazy? Come back two and a half, three weeks later and come in like late-ish September when maybe all these guys that have been hunting are off to other states now, or they're off to hunt elk or mule deer or something. And maybe we'll have the woods to ourselves now. And hopefully, you know, with three weeks under their belts, maybe these deer have like, they got blown up that first week and got really pressured. But if it died off the next two, two and a half weeks, maybe they'd get back to being comfortable again. And, you know, we'd have the Shangri-La type situation. That was my hope and my theory. So we decided to show up on September I don't know, 18th or something like that to hunt that like third and fourth week of September. So those are my thoughts leading into it, Tony. And listening to this, does it just make you laugh? <laughs> are you just sitting well, there chuckling? <laughs> you're just like following. I feel like you're just following my thought process from like the last couple of years. And I know how it shakes out. I know how it <laughs> shook out for you and I know how it shook out for me. And man, there is just a saturation point out there with pressure that you, it takes a while to overcome. And I, I know your thought process seems sound when you're like, well, it's been a couple of weeks. The opening, the opening week fervor should have died down and things should be back to normal. That has not been my experience in some of these early opener states. It's like maybe maybe a month later maybe 5 weeks later you can start getting back on them in a in a natural kind of movement pattern but man it's it's tough when you hunt those states that open early and the and the velvet pressure's real and it's just it's just a lot of people out there pushing them around it changes things in a hurry and it it changes them for a while yeah and and that's that's what we came to see too unfortunately because that first night I went to this that location I told you about with the island and the backwater and everything. And mm -hmm. I felt really good about it. And Josh went into this location last year that he'd hunted and fine-tuned and had these close calls of a really nice buck. We both went in there feeling really good. But I got a, a couple 
pieces of bad news leading up to it. Uh, like a day or two before this, another hunter that I'd bumped into there last year and had exchanged phone numbers texted me and said that, man, it doesn't look good in there. I've been in there. There's very little sign. Um, and there'd been like some development on neighboring private land. Some new stuff had been built. And he was just like, I just don't know what's going on. It doesn't look as good. So that was a little concerning. And then when we drove up, one of the access points, not the one that we were going to use, but one of them had three trucks. And so that made me think like, ah, man, that doesn't bode well for my theory. Um, but we go in, I go to this spot, I set up, feels great. I was very confident going in. We brought e-bikes this year so that we could come in and out faster and hopefully lower impact on these deer when we're rolling by them in the mornings or late at night. Um, Cause it's like a two plus mile previously had been a hike. So we were doing like two miles in the morning, two miles out midday, two miles in the afternoon, two miles out in the evening. So we were doing like eight mile days. So this year we brought quiet cats and that was huge. Really, really nice to have that. Uh, so we get in there. I'm feeling great. I'm buzzing along on my bike, just like thinking about how nice it's going to be to roll one of these bucks out here tonight on my little trailer that I've got back in the truck and yada, 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 and uh, get in the tree and I see one doe for the entire night one doe previously in this spot you know you're seeing 15 20 plus deer bunch of bucks one doe on our first hunt josh same thing first hunt of his in this general area last year he saw like two shooters and a bunch of deer he saw nothing zero deer that's day one i'm going to fast forward and move quickly through some of these events here because day two we have very similar situations i decide based on what I saw day one and based on kind of some funky wind stuff that was happening night number one. Um, you know, one thing I did have that, that made me a little bit up in the air was that when the wind died, I had like a weird kind of like thermal thing with my wind. It was supposed to be going Southwest and every once in a while it would push East. And I think that was what I found is in some of these spots along this river, it doesn't happen all the time. So it's like you don't you don't know it until you're in this situation. I haven't been able to figure out why or what features of the land cause this, but in, in some areas you'll get this effect where the current of the river kind of pushes your wind along. Seems to be like a very low wind speed. Um, in certain like if you're deep enough or close enough to this like canyon stretch, it pulls. In other places, it'll be true to the forecast. And in this particular area, that particular night, it just gave me a handful of times where it pulled more from an easterly direction, and that wasn't good for the movement I was expecting. So after that first night, I was like, well, it might have been bad wind-ish, but also like that was not the way it should have panned out. I should have still saw more than that. Josh still should have been seeing something with the good wind he had. So I decided to pivot. Hold on one second, Mark. Can yeah. we... Can we hit on that point with the river quick? Because yeah. I think, I think something there that's worth talking about is, you know, pr- probably with that the river situation, it's probably the temperature differentiation, don't you think? Like the water's colder, and it's that's probably having an effect on the wind there. Or do you think it was a terrain thing? Uh, well, I think it's it's definitely a combination of those things, right? Because there's like a there's a big hill above the river, so you've got two different things possibly happening. You've got a normal thermal dropping off of these hills right in the evening as things cool down so you have that possible thermal feature uh and then you do have like you said the the water temperature difference that's gonna pull things um and then you also have just like how like 
how might a south wind so this hill this big hill like almost a canyon it's like a one i don't know how to describe it. it's like a, almost a cliff on the north side of this river corridor but nothing to the south so if you have a pure south wind it's like coming from the south and hitting that cliff and then is that cycling back and doing oh. funky things too um so there's like three different possible things happening and over the last three years i've seen I've seen a number of different funky things, but the most consistent thing that I've realized is that if you have a very low wind, more often than not, it's going to suck. It's going to turn into a, a wind that kind of goes with the current of the river, which is going yep. from east to west. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think we don't I, it's really hard to pin that stuff down, but you know how common it is to like encounter that. Right. And you know, yeah. we, we talk about thermals and we write about thermals and, you know, anybody who's ever hunted in the mountains probably understands thermals better than somebody who hasn't because they're so extreme typically in the mountains. But even, even when you do that and you're in a situation like we were this year when we were elk hunting where it was hot, like really hot for elk conditions at, especially at the elevation we were at and it wasn't getting that cold. You didn't get that huge rush of thermals in the afternoon coming down. It took a while for it to switch. So you had this like, because it wasn't such a drastic change in temperature, it was more of a like a subdued thermal, which like was terrible because you couldn't count on it for a long time doing, you know, you're like, hey, you're supposed to be rushing down the mountain here pretty soon and it's doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And I, I see that in the whitetail world too, where it's like if your temperatures aren't like if, if it's not really changing throughout the day, sometimes you don't get like really reliable thermals. If it's, you know, only dropping a few degrees as the sun sets, you're going to get a thermal but it's not the same thing as if it was really going to get cold and, you know, drop 10 or 15 degrees in the next hour and a half or something. And that's, that's like a spot situational type of thing. And it saves a lot of freaking deer. Yeah. And it's, yes, it's, it's hard to predict too. Like you can't really peg like, Oh, it's going to happen in this situation or not. It's you have to assess quickly and then make a gut decision on like, is this going to stick? Like, is it going to, is this what it's going to keep doing? And if so, then you need to adjust. But then there's always like, I always worry, like you, you find like a weird wind thing that's going on and then you're stuck thinking, okay, do I trust that this funky thing that's happening right now is going to continue or in half hour is it going to switch back to the predicted wind? And then I'm going to be like SOL because I didn't set up for that. Yep. That's, I, I don't know the right answer. I just making a gut decision in the moment based on, you know, experience and the conditions, I guess. Yeah. And it's, it's so, it's so tied to so many different things, right? It's tied to the temperature and probably partially to the seasonality of it. But also, like you said, if you have one weird terrain feature around you, like I've, I've got a spot in North Dakota that I've killed some bucks on and it, it's like next to a huge rock wall. Like, I, I don't know how tall it is, but if you fell off, you'd be dead. If you hit the rocks halfway down, like it's, it's tall and it's, always kind of a crapshoot when you get in there like what how is that going to affect the wind because depending on which way the wind is coming from it might be blowing over you and you might not have any wind hardly or if it's coming the other way and it's it's blasting against that rock wall it's like man i shouldn't even be here and it's you know that's only one little small spot there i bet you if you were you know 500 yards away from that you'd have vastly different experience with the same wind true so I think the it, I think the takeaway there is just do not trust your wind forecast as gospel ever. Yeah, 
always that's, that's a good takeaway <laughs> yes always 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 be monitoring as you're going along and and be willing to adjust and accept your new reality i think that's that's a big one right there right yep so <clears throat> excuse me so back to my next day and kind of a, a big kind of I don't know if this is like a lesson I learned, but this is like a thing I kept reminding myself of on the trip. So like a, like a maxim or a, a, like, don't ever forget this mark as I'm talking to myself is like, you have to be willing to pivot fast on these kinds of hunts. When I only have six days, you don't have a lot of time to ride a dead horse. So that first day it was dead. This other hunter was telling me how I was dead. I had one trail camera back there that had been dead leading up to this. Josh hunts his honey hole and that's dead. And even though I had like been in love with this place leading up to the hunt, I just had a lot of red alarm bells going off. And I like the previous me would have been like, God, that place was so good. You gotta, you gotta go on there more. But I decided to pull the plug and I decided, you know, I got, you got to pivot. Like there's a whole bunch of things here that do not seem to be where you want them to. You need to find where the deer are now. The pressure thing must be more than you thought it was going to be. These deer have been impacted more than you were hoping they would be. You got to find them. So day two, I went past my night, my day one location, worked my way um, into a new area about, uh, about a half a third to a half mile further than my original location scouted my way into a spot and found a spot that was about as deep from a like distance between cover and uh, like the distance from river to food was, um, but gave me a little bit of an observation zone. So this is a zone I'd never been into before. I could see like in a couple different windows out to a good distance. I had a number of decent runs that were all kind of converging in this, um, I don't know how to describe it. There's like this little pockety open stuff and then it pinches down to thick cedars heading towards these crop fields like 400 yards away or something. And I thought, okay, this is a nice observation location. If deer are in this new chunk, there's going to be some that pass through here. And all I wanted to do on this day was like, I just want to know I'm back in the deer. Where are these deer? Where have they been pushed to? So my theory is that they were pushed, you know, another third to a half mile back into this stuff. So now we're like two and a half miles from the nearest road access. Long story short on this, I sat the ground because I didn't find the right tree, decided I wanted to be in the right spot, and I saw almost nothing again. I saw one little tiny buck, like a year and a half, probably a year and a half old, maybe the worst two-year-old you ever saw, um, but that was it. And so again, and this is stuff that should be good. Like in previous years, you hunt this kind of place this far back off the road, you'd be seeing a lot of deer. Again, nearly blanked. Josh stuck it out kind of near his little honey hole. He tweaked it a little bit, but again blanked or saw like one spike or something so again now i'm thinking all right you gotta pivot you can't ride a dead dead horse day three now i'm in real desperate search mode like this is this is not at all like what we were expecting they're not any of the places we thought they'd be i haven't been seeing fresh tracks i've not seen a lot of droppings i've not seen a single rub nothing like no early velvet rubs nothing like that so day three i go hard I go all the way to that area that I hunted day two and then decide, okay, I'm going to take this. There's like, there's old two tracks and stuff that cut through a lot of this public land because uh, ranchers run cattle and stuff through some of these places certain times of the year. So I decide, okay, I'm going to ride my bike as far as I can take it, which is about two and a half miles. I'm going to get off the bike, lock it up, and then I'm going to walk this two track 
all the way to the river. I'm going to go all the way as, as far away from the food as I can possibly get. And what I've learned is that they're, they're bedding along this river. So I'm going to go right to the river and then I'm going to work that river up. And I had a unique situation here. And this brings me to my third, I think it's my third major lesson, major takeaway, which is do not ignore tracks. And this is something like early on in my deer hunting career, I didn't give them much attention at all. Trail cameras were very sexy, all that kind of stuff. But the more and more I'd spend time in the woods in different places, the more I find myself falling back on tracks, just like they are the thing. They're the thing. And I had a perfect situation here because the night prior it rained a bunch. And so I knew, okay, that big rain hit. Anything I see today is going to be from the last, you know, 14 hours. I can, I can know with 100% certainty where the deer are right now. And I'm going to walk until I find where there are significant numbers of deer. And so I pushed, I mean, I went back into some good stuff. I went way back to the river and I crossed all these different tracks or like two tracks, sandy areas where like you could very, very clearly see if there's any deer. I watched this two track the whole way I biked out and there was like zero deer for almost three miles, Tony. I mean, they were gone, gone. And so I just kept going and I, I kept push. I walked into stuff that like the last two years, I never would have touched with a 10 foot pole because I've been so paranoid. I was going to spook deer. So paranoid. I blow it up. But I just had came into this with this idea like you're, I'm not going to settle. Like I'm not just going to ride something because it looks good. I'm not going to ride something because it should be good. I'm going to go until I know there's deer and tracks. were going to tell me that story. And so I walked and walked and walked and worked my way past this whole island that last year had been loaded with deer. Nothing this year. Work my way even further. Now I'm three miles back and I get to this next island. And this was like, this is the farthest point from the access points. Like if you came in from the way we were coming, you'd be about 3.2 miles or something. If you came in from the farthest other side, the far Western side, you'd be another 3.2 miles to come from that way. So this is like as, as deep as you can get from East to West waves. And this last island, I'm thinking, well, this has got to be where they're at. There should be deer here. It's really hard to get to. I don't know anyone crazy enough from whitetail hunting perspective out here that would do this. And so there was a channel where some parts of the year there was water running through it off of the river. But right now it was dry. It was covered in rocks on the bottom, but there was kind of raised banks on either side. And so I walked the not on the island, but like the mainland side where you could see trails and stuff where deer had, you know, dropped off the bank and gone into the channel to cross. And you could just perfectly see where deer historically had gone down because there's these beaten down, you know, kind of gullies, little trails where they're coming off that cutoff bank. And you could see where there's there's nothing, there's nothing, and then tracks. Tracks, 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 tracks. And I was like, all right, this is my first like good, fresh set of tracks. And Based on what the wind was doing, I knew like with this kind of river pull with the current, I was like, okay, I got to get on the west side of this island. So I'm going to scout my way all the way down this and check and see if this continues to be a thing. Like, are there more deer crossing onto this island, different spots? And once I get all the way to the west side, I'll have, I'll I'll know what's going on and I'll be west of where this wind's going to pull. And so I worked my way down this channel and like, here's a crossing with a bunch of tracks. Here's a crossing with a bunch of tracks. Here's a crossing with a bunch of tracks. I would say a bunch, I'm not saying like dozens of deer, but like a few deer per track, per crossing, a few deer per crossing, which was like monumentally more than anywhere else. 
So long story short, I felt great about this. I finally thought, all right, like I found the deer. They're in this farthest, nastiest part, and they're back bedded on this like willow, nasty, thicket island right in the edge of the river. Set up and ended up feeling like I was in the game and thought I was going to like make it happen. I had a little buck pop out of the island, go across. Another little buck popped out of the island, goes across. Another little buck pops out of the island, goes across. I see a couple does come out and do it. I actually had some elk pop out, which I was not expecting. Um, And then at last light, two unidentified deer cross, like as far away from me as I can see down the channel, they go out. So that night I felt pretty good. Like I saw deer. I saw some year and a half old bucks and I saw a couple does. That was good. That was like as good as it's been. I felt like I'm kind of in the game. I decide, okay, tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up on this mountain and I'm going to glass down into this channel and I'm going to confirm where these deer are coming in the most. And I'm going to see some bucks. Like I'm going to dial it in and I'm going to come back in here and kill them that next night. So I get out there early the next morning, climb this mountain on the other side of the river, get up top there, glass this thing. And I watched this channel for four hours or whatever. And I just saw two does the whole morning come back in there. And it just like shattered my, my idea. I, I, I was really confident in this thing I found. And then I watched this whole area and man, like there's just nothing going in there. So now it's day four. And again, I'm thinking you're just not in them. Like they're just, they've, they've been blown out of town and we were actually driving around at midday that day and right across the road on private land where there was no hunting allowed. Apparently there was like 20, 30 deer, not 30, maybe 20 deer feeding in an alfalfa field at noon, including like a couple nice shooter bucks. So now I'm starting to think, man, did all the deer get pushed off the public onto private? Like they're not even here anymore. So now I'm in kind of this, this continue with this theme of pivoting and not settling. I decide, okay, we really got to rethink things and see like what other opportunities are out there. So midday on day four, we went and went to like four totally different public land parcels, like half an hour away. Like we explored every different unit or every different like piece of public in our unit. And we went and drove around, looked at parking areas, tried to see where there's truck tracks. We went and walked a bunch of stuff. We went and glassed a bunch of stuff just to see like what's here, what's it look like. Um, and we ended up hunting. We ended up splitting up that night. Me, Josh, and Sam hunted three different areas that night to just try to find like, Hey, are, can we find deer anywhere? Can we just get into a place that hasn't been pillaged and that might have deer? And, um, we didn't really find them in any of those spots. Josh saw like 10 tree stands and five trail cameras. I had a bunch of cameras and tree stands. Sam did see a nice buck at last light, but it busted him in his location. But that was the only deer he saw. Um, and I should also add that day earlier, we had found like three different dead bucks on the original piece of public. Maybe this is the day prior, but the picture I'm trying to paint here is like what we were discovering was that everywhere we'd been had been like raped and pillaged. I've, uh, I think it'd be conservative to say we, we saw at least 30 or more tree stands, at least 20 or more trail cameras. We found the three dead deer. One of them had its head cut off. One of them was a really nice buck that looked like it had been hit in the, guts and just not recovered Um, so it was not a pretty picture anywhere 
There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth mark do you think that this is a there's an outfitter situation going on there or do you think this is just recreational hunters just flooding the spot you know because that's a lot of tree stands it's a good question and i hadn't the only i guess i don't know there's two things one like there's always a lot of trucks, these different trailheads or these different like access points, which makes me think just like average dudes. And we've bumped into average dudes and talked to average dudes. This is like, it's too close to a population center. And I I should preface this. Like you and I have talked about this a little bit, but I've been trying to make this work, this place work because it's close to my cabin out there. And I've wanted like to have a cool whitetail spot near my Idaho cabin. And so like I forced the issue, even though it's relatively close to a pretty decent population center. Yep. And and I kept hoping, like, oh, you can find a way to make it work. And we were seeing deer. So, like, you kind of could make it work, sort of. But what I'm seeing is that it's, it's maybe just not, like, the juice isn't worth the squeeze because, you know, there's just so many people. And I will say that when I've done my, when I did my summer scouting this year and when I did more scouting last summer, I guess it would have been, when I pushed into, like, some of this, like, three miles back in stuff, I found a bunch of double sets. 
So someone was in there with two tree stands per tree, which makes me think that someone was going in there and filming hunts, right? I mean, why else would you have like, I probably found like six, seven, maybe more tree stands that were set up as doubles. Like, why else would you do that? Um, so I don't know what the deal is, but it was, it was pounded and, um, to, to make what's becoming a long story, I guess a little bit shorter day five is pretty uneventful. Uh, we end up hunting in the morning in some new spots. We end up hunting in the evening on the West side access point, which we hadn't hunted yet. Uh, but there'd been cars in that, there'd been cars in that parking lot. So we'd been avoiding it but they'd been gone the last two or three days and we hadn't been able to find anything on our side. So I said, all right, well let's, let's give that a shot. I'd scouted some sweet looking locations over there. Maybe these guys are just hunting close up towards the food sources. And if I go deep into the riverbed stuff again and get back on these islands, maybe they're pushed back in there. Um, went deep on that. Uh, one thing I felt good about this trip was like, I, and this is like one of those lessons or one of those like, takeaways for me is like just don't settle for good enough don't settle for and it looks like it should be good i decided this year like i'm not just gonna ride something that should be good i'm gonna confirm that it is good so i'm gonna go until i see that concentration of sign whether it be you know you know if it was a rut hunt it'd be writing sign right now i'm looking for the fresh tracks or fresh droppings or something so i kept pushing and went deeper than i've ever been on that side and got into a location that looked money. It was like there was a crossing of the main river, and then there was like a flooded ditch that converged with that that had a crossing over that. And I could see back into two of these different willow-covered islands, um, and they they all came together right there. And I thought, gosh, there's got to be something that's going to come through here. And all I saw was a doe and a moose. Um, so uh, this brings us all to the last evening, which is the last kind of interesting thing that happened. So everything I just told you is now in the rear view mirror. We had our plan A's and plan B's and those ended up you know, being devoid of deer. So then I kept pushing and exploring new places and I really didn't find anything except for that one island, that 3.2 miles in island where I had the fresh tracks going in there. You know, I didn't see anything but the does and the, the year and a half olds. And when I glassed it the next morning, I just saw a few does. So I kind of, you know, lost the confidence in that. And then we went and we hammered. We kind of did like a like a shotgun approach and tried to look at all these different parcels around there to try to see if there's maybe been a hidden gem that nobody else is hitting. But all the signs pointed to it just being pillaged across the board. So now we're to our last night. And I look at like everything I have available to me and everything I've learned. And I try to think back, like, is there any place that I, is there any rock I've left unturned? Is there anything that seems worth my time again? And the only thing I could come back to was that Island, that 3.2 miles in their Island where I found the fresh tracks going in and where I saw less than I expected, but I still did see like, that was the best movement I saw yet. So I decide like, all right, I'm going to give that one more try a little bit of me thought like that just seems like it could work. If, if the deer haven't been completely pushed off the sign you saw indicates that it should be decent, even though you didn't see a good buck like you were hoping and thought you would. And I get in there, I find a good spot to set up along the crossings there based on what the wind was doing. And last three minutes of daylight, three, four five minutes of daylight, a buck steps out into the channel about a hundred yards down from me. 
and then a second one. And they're both nice, mature bucks. Step out in this channel, make a scrape, like both of them. Like one makes a scrape, one the next one walks up, makes a scrape, and then they spar. And then it's dark. And they I see them like in fading light. I see them turn and they don't cross the channel. They go right back into the island. They didn't even leave this island before dark. And that was the end of the hunt. We had to leave the next morning. So my takeaway from that, I, I had two thoughts coming out of that experience that night. One part of me said, one part of me counted that as a win, like a small win, because I had done, I had thoroughly explored and tested and tried and, and examined all my options. And finally, the last night I found a shooter buck. Like I found mature bucks in this place that had just been pillaged. I finally found them and kind of confirmed, you know, that I was on the right track. And if I'd had more time, maybe I could have made a move now that I saw them and maybe would have had a chance. So a part of me said, Hey, cool. You, you worked hard and you kind of found them. The other side of me said, was I too fast to judge, to make a judgment on that spot? So I talked earlier about some of my takeaways and lessons were, were don't settle, pivot fast, you know, explore and then move on. But in this case, I checked it out and I made a judgment on it after a night and a morning. And then I moved on when in fact there were two mature bucks there that I didn't know. And now I, you know, had skipped the last three days there that I could have spent there fine tuning and maybe seeing them and making a move on them. And instead I was elsewhere and now when I finally do see him, it's too late. So that's that's how the hunt ended. Those were like the things I was thinking about, the lessons I learned or the questions I had. Um, what What's your analysis of that last day question and, and anything else I talked about? Man, I think you got, you, you got sucked into the conundrum of do I, do I put my resources into finding a really good spot or do I put my resources into figuring a spot so I can figuring out a specific spot so I can hunt it really well. And it's tough, man. I mean, it's, it's really hard to overcome that level of pressure, but when you keep pushing it like that and you find those bucks on that Island and you see that behavior, you go, okay, they didn't leave. Like there's, there's still deer there to work with, but you got to figure out how to, how to beat them at that new game. And they're not giving you much. And so it's like, I don't know. I, I consider that a pretty big win, honestly, like to see those deer and at least get to that point with them. Because, you know, I mean, if you, if you go check out these other spots there and you guys kind of divide and conquer and you go, this is, this is the same story everywhere else, then it's time to go back and just figure out what you're missing. And I think I think the not settling approach to that is really really important because it did put you in a position to find those deer even though you didn't kill them. Like I th I think I think that's a good lesson there. I think it just really sucks to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was uh it was a doozy. And I learned like you said like I I mean there's there's that whole not settling thing. The the thing I don't have a firm sense of yet is like there's this fine line, right? As you described there, like there's the don't settle, but then there's also like sometimes though you don't want to be too fast to judge. And like, how do you, like how much time do you give a spot? How much, you know, how do you make that decision? I think that just comes down to like experience and gut feel and how much time you have in general, right? Like in my case, I had six days. I just didn't have much time to work with. I yep. think if I had a season to work this area, 
I would have been much more patient and willing to give a spot time, right? But in this case, it was like, I gotta, I gotta get eyes on something, or like, I need some kind of confirming sign that I'm in the right zone, so that then I can start fine tuning. But until I have something that confirms I'm in the right zone, at least this is my theory. My theory is like, I'm not gonna dedicate real time to a spot until I know I'm in the zone. And I, I just wasn't seeing anything that made me think like this was a, this was a spot except for that Island, that spot, that Island was the one where like I thought, gosh, it should be, but I got, I got deflated by that morning where I thought like I would see something really great coming in. I'd see a bunch of deer. I would see what should have been there, what the sign told me should be there. And there was just a couple does. And that made me think, eh, more of the same. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe I, maybe that was a mistake or maybe, Hey, that just was the luck of the draw. And they didn't, they didn't come through there that morning and they did the next night. And that's, you know, that's just hunting. Sometimes they do things and they don't repeat them. Sometimes they do something wonky one day and they do something different the next. And no matter what you do, you, you wouldn't know, um, on a short hunt like that. So it was, it was an interesting challenge. I did feel decent about that kind of small win there at the end. I was happy with the way that I kind of pushed through places and explored things and was more aggressive in my scouting. And I really think tracks were, were a big thing that I used on all of these hunts that, uh, you know, I've used more and more every year. And I think last year, you know, on the deer country tour, when I went to all these different places, like very different styles, very different regions, I didn't have trail camera information. I didn't have like history. It was all brand new. I kept on finding myself falling back on tracks more and more when you're in those types of situations and getting more comfortable with interpreting. And I think that, you know, even though I didn't kill, I think like that was like a really clutch part of my small win. Yep. Um, for whatever that's I, worth. I think, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of doing hunts like this is you realize what your crutches are at home and, you know, you, I, I've talked about this a lot. When you go on the road and you got four or five, six days to kill one on public land, those trail cameras aren't doing you any good. Like, it's just, it's not, it, to me, it's not worth even bringing them along because when you can go out and find fresh sign rubs and scrapes and you can see those tracks, especially if you're on a river bottom situation, that's the best you can do. Because you can, you can gauge how current it is and, and how heavy the traffic is so important and you're just not going to get that you don't have enough time to make a trail camera work for you that way yeah yeah that's um it's an easy trap to get sucked into these days with how prevalent cameras are and how short-term satisfying cell cameras are right Mm -hmm. um but i'm finding more and more the same thing that um they can they're almost like golden handcuffs like they they seem so great that you don't want to leave them behind but if you get too dependent on them, you can get stuck in a marriage you don't want to be in. Yeah. So let me let me ask you the question that everybody really wants to know the answer to, Mark. Um, how come you're going out to Idaho in mid-September and you're not hunting elk? <laughs> you're going back to the same pressured public land uh, for whitetails when you could be out there hunting elk. What's going on there? Yeah, man. Me and Josh, when we were driving home, we said we asked ourselves the same question. We're like, all right, this is stupid. We've been, we've been just like I said, we're trying to make this spot work for whitetails because I want to be at my cabin and get my money's worth out of those mortgage payments. And uh, <laughs> the thing is that we've got rutting elk two hundred yards away from the cabin. Like, what am I doing? Um, so yeah, one of two things is going to happen next year. I'll tell you one: we're done with this spot for whitetails. Like I've done. I've given it three years. Every year after the hunt, we're like, eh, probably shouldn't do that again. And then we get sucked into it. <laughs> um, we're done. 
Uh, so I'm going to do one of th- two options. Either Number one, I could try to get some private permission in some of these places. Like I still, I still love being out there at my place. I still want to have a whitetail spot. So I might explore some private options, knock on some doors, talk to some ranchers, that kind of thing. That's a possibility. Or number two, I'm going to say, forget the whitetails. I can hunt those other places. I'm going to finally get back to elk hunting and uh, scratch that itch. So TBD, my friend. Yeah. I I want everybody to remember that you said you're done with Idaho whitetails in that spot because I'm curious what happens next summer when we're we're bearing down on the season. Uh, but my my vote would be to say, you know what, those, those white tails, the other guys with seven thousand stands in there can have them. I would go chase those bugling bulls for a couple days. Yeah, man, I'm I'm over it. And I do think, you know, in all seriousness, there is like a lesson there that should be just like keyed in on again. Like you can sometimes do almost everything right and do all the things you're supposed to do on a public land hunt. And sometimes, you know, that, that pressure is just maybe not 100% insurmountable because, you know, maybe you could, but is it still fun or, or could you just explore some new areas and find some places that's a little bit less pounded or explore some different opportunities? Um, I don't know. There's, uh, there's something to be said for, I don't know, just not dealing with that bullshit, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, I mean, I honestly think that, you know, when you talk about that, I'm sitting here and I'm like, I'm thinking about hunts myself I've had that are just like that. And it happens a lot. And it's probably a pretty good thing to talk about in the industry because we've been just painting this picture that, you know, go hunt public land white tails. It's going to be a blast. You'll challenge yourself. You'll kill the best trophy of your life. But so often when you go, this is more of the outcome where you're like, man, there's way more people here and way fewer deer. And this is a real heavy lift to get around any decent buck. And, you know, you don't see that part in a a YouTube video or an Instagram post for the most part. Like it's hard to kind of like wrap your head around what that kind of hunt really entails until you're in it. Yeah. And it's a vastly different thing. And it's real common. It's in, like we said earlier, it's really common now that this is so popular and people are really, you know, turned on to the the early season hunts and some of these destination hunts. Like this is, this is not like an unusual outcome or experience and people should be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like there's to your point about how popular some of this stuff has gotten. And I've heard you talk about this in the past too. Like Right. There's some media these days that show public land, like incredible success on public land all over the place. And it makes you think like it's a piece of cake almost. But what you forget is that there's like 90 days of time being invested and there's like 10 guys out there all scouting and hunting and doing all this stuff. And they still just have like a handful of wins along the way. Um, You shouldn't beat yourself up if you go out there as a solo person and try to pull it off in six or seven days and instead have a a tough, a tough week. Um And I don't want to paint any of this as like complaining about people being out there, right? Because I'm like, personally, it makes things hard. But at the same time, like, I'm glad there's other folks that are getting into hunting. Like, this is this is not an indictment of folks getting out there and learning to hunt. Like, I'm glad there's folks learning to hunt. I'm glad people are out there enjoying our public lands. Um, all the things are, are are good things, but on an individual basis it does make for challenges sometimes and you just got to learn how to work around it. 
Yeah. Well, and I don't, I don't know about you, but when I deal with something like that, the thing that just like constantly, like that little voice in my head always tells me like somebody is figuring it out, you know, like somebody's in there getting that right and you're not. And that drives me crazy. (laughs) Oh, I was almost that somebody to those other 37 guys out there. I just had one more day, Tony. <laughs> yeah, one more day. One but. more day. Yeah, and it would have been another shit show probably. But I'll, I'm going to take my small win. I'm going to run with it. I'm going to say that the season got off to an interesting start, learned some stuff, and uh, I'm ready for Michigan to open. Nice. Nice. All right, buddy. I think that should be a wrap today. Um, any other final thoughts? Nope. Just get out there and hunt. Hot weather, cold weather. Be careful of your shots in the rain. Don't go hunt Idaho white hills. That's, <laughs> that's the takeaway, right? That's the big one. And flashing <laughs> lights on the billboard. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, buddy. All right, and that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Just a reminder, season 11 of Meat Eater coming to TheMeatEater.com on October 26th. And my show, Deer Country, new episodes out every Tuesday on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Check it out, like those uh, videos, leave me a comment, subscribe, and watch Deer Country. I thank you, I appreciate you. Keep me in a job, folks. (laughs) Thanks a lot, and until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.